Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Torashek podcast. It is that time of the year where we get ready to log off, take a few days off and spend a bit of time with our families and maybe less time with our phones. But when you're taking a downtime, we will still have new podcasts ready for you over the Christmas period. Lots of exclusives available on patreon.com forward slash Torashek. Where right now, for example, you can find the podcast we just did with the three lads, the three senior hurlers, Owen, Paulie and Roman of the Ditch on the review of 2023 and their plans indeed for 2024. Available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. So please click the link, join us there, get access to our entire back catalogue entirely plea free, including lots and lots of exclusives lined up over the next few weeks. And you'll be doing us the favour of helping this little platform keep going into 2024. I say it all the time, it is the easiest bit of activism you can do. If you're getting something out of it, this is the way to give it back. Patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah. Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I am your host, Sam McElwain. And as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Gareth Mulvana. How are you doing, Gareth? Hi Sam, not too bad. Yeah, all good. Over the cold, getting better. Can't complain. Good. Apart I, I from got a, the usual I got a, complaints about Forest. Oh, I got well. Don't we'll start football. Uh, I I did get a, a message from one of our listeners the other day asking how your cold was because the two of us sounded pretty rough last week. Apparently, so it, it was good that somebody actually cares. Um, how much they care, I'm not sure. Absolutely. Tonight, tonight is a good one. <laughs> tonight, a second attempt at this because well transatlantic and everything else. So tonight we have Ed Maloney. Ed is an award-winning Irish journalist. He is the author of a number of critically acclaimed books of the Northern Ireland conflict, including A Secret History of the IRA and Voices from the Grave. He helped co-produce the 2018 film I, Dolores, and it was based on an interview that he conducted with the late IRA member Dolores Price. So Ed, thank you for joining us tonight all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. My my pleasure, Sam and Gareth. Nice to be on the program and nice to meet you. Thanks, Ed. Ed, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you've got a, a really pressing engagement for after this podcast. So I'm going to crack in with with the first question. Um, and recently we have watched the Westminster government push through the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill. Um, mm. Every party in Northern Ireland rejected it. And that's, that's a first that they all joined together. Um, and... You have spoken before about amnesties. Do you think they work? Do you think that something like a South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission or what other style setup would work for us? Well, you know, it's it's worth giving it giving it a try, and it's certainly better than doing nothing because what we have now is a situation where uh, people who are sources of information will eventually will, will soon die, and you know they will not they will not be available for interviews. The relatives will die, and I think this is what the government is hoping that you know within five or ten years or so, most of the people uh, who have a stake in in the argument um, uh, will no longer be there and won't be making the argument, and they'll get away with it. And that's an absolute disgrace. Um, you know, what can you do about it? Um, maybe a change of government, but do you really expect Starmer to be any different than the Tories? I mean, he's, he's busting his ass to be a Tory at the moment, and um, he'll be. He'll be a Tory on all these other issues as well, including this one. I'm afraid, you know. So it looks as if um, we're we're going to kiss goodbye to it. And it's one of the reasons the fear that this would happen 
and the urgency of the moment, the fact that, um, you know, when, when the, the ceasefires sort of really, really started to work properly, um, we were well into, uh, what, 40 years after the Troubles, and um, some people who were active at the very start, you know, the, um, the generation which began the Troubles, if you like, dying off already, um, and um, with that thought in mind, um, that was why I I pushed for the idea of this um, this Boston College set of interviews, which um, we were we were successful in in getting um, an IRA interviewer, and we were successful in getting a very good UVF interviewer, and the interviews which they conducted until they were rudely interrupted were uh, and still are a significant contribution to our knowledge of what took place during the Troubles. But it was only scratching the surface, really. You know, you needed something much bigger than that um, and something which would, um, you know, which would achieve uh, respectability and also be welcomed and and be used by the relatives of those who had um, most most at stake in this, in this discussion, you know. Um, so it's very sad. Because I think it's interesting, Ed, when we think about um, the Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery, and if families are going to get access to the information that they're being promised they're going to get access to, surely what you were doing, and Anthony and everyone else involved with Boston College Archive, surely that was a precedent for, for what was going to be done anyway. So why do you think there's been such a hullabaloo about what you did and what that project was all about because uh, ultimately the aim is to get the truth out there to get those stories out there so what what, what what's your reading of the situation well because the government the governments are control freaks and they want to control something like that and the idea that an independent um, entity of whatever sort individuals or groups or whatever would do this by themselves was anathema because if it's not controlled then the government can't decide who what shape it takes and who will be who will give evidence and not give evidence and so on and so forth. I mean, an, an ideal uh, probe, proper probe into what actually happened during the troubles would embrace uh, the intelligence agencies, for example, as well as the as as the the police and the army. And these are entities that no government, I think, wanted to see being being subject to scrutiny and questioning and that sort of stuff. You know, so. I think I think that basically is the problem. And if we do, if we can't get at what the, um, the soldiers and, and the police were up to, um, but we can only get um, a, a limited amount of knowledge about what the paramilitaries are up to. And don't forget, the probes will be exactly the same in terms of their attitude to this type of thing as um, as the British and the and uh, and and, and everyone, you know everyone else in that establishment. Uh, so you would have problems there as well. You know, um, in fact, you may have may have had or could have more problems with the provost than you have with anyone else because they've got many more darks, darker secrets in some ways to, to hide, you know? Yeah, I suppose that in this place, Ed, it, we, we all have our skeletons, we all have them in the cupboard kind of thing. And it, I don't like using the word skeletons the way we are here at the moment, to be honest. Um, but we all have something to hide and it's never as clear as black and white about what operations took place and what operations didn't take place. Yeah. Um, 
so your so your Boston tapes were a way into that. But again, I remember the clamor at the time from people saying we shouldn't be giving airtime or, or voices to the ter- terrorists or murderers. But in the same breath, they were saying they wanted the truth and they wanted the story of how their loved ones died. It's a painful transition, but I think what we need to do is give give those combatants the space and the time to speak and then give them the place that they can be heard. If people w- truly want to know what happened, then we need to give them the space. Well, that means then then it's done on a sort of freelance basis, you know, which is where, where we started off with Boston College. I mean, uh, the unfortunate thing about Boston College is that we, we, we partnered with the very worst uh, elements in Irish America to to do this, and they abandoned us at the very first sign of any any trouble, and then it made life very unpleasant um, thereafter. Uh, so you know that's a difficulty as well. You know, if you're going to go private, it's you're talking about money. I mean, for example, one of the things that happened with the Boston College uh, uh, business was that after the first year, the college just started so well, you're on your own now. We're not giving you any money. I said, what? Yeah, you have to raise your own money because that's the way we work it in this in this college. They hadn't told me this beforehand, so it came as a, a, a terrible surprise. And and I had to actually finance the thing out of my own money for two or three months, while I tried uh, fruitlessly to uh, you know in, in, uh, interest people in the American business because you had to go to American business and corporations for this sort of money, you know. And they were saying, well, Northern Ireland, what, why would, no, no, thank you, no. Like, you know, we want to do something about um, a relationship with the African-American community, that would be no problem. But this this conflict that was over in Ireland, uh, no, they really weren't interested. And secondly, by doing that, you know, by forcing me to go out in the open and ask for money, people, you're actually making something public, which was supposed to be quite secret, you know. And that really uh, annoyed me. Eventually, someone got some sense in Boston College. I got my money back, and they started to to fund it again. But that came up a time and time and time again, as 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 the problem um, uh, that they 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 didn't want to pay for it themselves. They wanted someone else to pay for it. Always, you know. Um, so that's a big difficulty in this thing. That's why you have to go to government. Government's the only one who can sign a check big enough. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the Boston College, I mean, I remember when I was writing the Tartan Gangs book back in 2014, 2015, that's when the whole thing kicked off, particularly around Winky Ray. And I was directly involved with the people around Winky at that time and trying to get access to those oral history interviews. Now, I was able to navigate it in a certain way that I was able to get the stories um, without, you know... I think I think it got in early enough. I think it would have been a few months later. It might have been too difficult. So the Boston tapes has been something as for me as a historian that's come up and down and it comes in and out of the news. And obviously, with the passing of Winky Ray um, last week, it's back in the news again. How are you, how do you feel when when something like that comes up in the news? How do you feel about Winky Ray's interview and, and the implications for uh, tr- truth and reconciliation and what we're talking about here, Ed? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one, it's one set of interviews, very good set of interviews, as, as I keep on saying. Um, and, um, uh, well, it'll be a, what, a one day, 10 day wonder. I don't know, something like that, perhaps. Um, but unless it's, it's part of a, unless it sort of feeds into a demand that we should, we should be doing this on a, on a, on a proper organized and cohesive and comprehensive basis. 
and you know the the, inspira the, the inspiration for <clears throat> excuse me for Boston College for myself and Anthony McIntyre signing to do this was the release by the the free state government of the records from oral history records uh, from the the, the Tanmore. Right now, those had been available and were were technically speaking uh, uh, capable of being released, except the the the, the government in Dublin sat on it. Uh, for so long, because they were terrified that these stories showing how <laughs> how all these people had had killed people, for, had killed uh, soldiers and, and policemen for Ireland, would only serve the interests of the provost. So they sat on it until such time as the peace process made it clear that we weren't going to go back to the war. But when that came out, immediately the first thought in my head was, "We have to do that for here. Someone has to do that for here." Right. And there were immense problems. We knew straight away if you went to any of the Irish or British uh, outlets, um, the, the, the government would know about it and, um, and their spies would be in there straight away and no one would talk to you because they wouldn't trust it and what have you. You'd have to go to someone like America. And that's why we ended up uh, going to Boston. But even that was a very difficult sell, you know. Um, but that's it, you know. I mean, when that happens, someone um starts to talk uh, like um um the tapes you're talking about there maybe that will re-stimulate interest in 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 the type of project that we had in mind it's a bit late in the day but better than late than never you know yeah um, so, sorry just just before sham comes in there i i as a historian and somebody who writes about this period of history I often find it frustrating when I hear people talk about reconciliation and truth recovery and the need for transparency. But the situation I'm in as somebody who's submitted a freedom of information request for access to internment files from the yes. Northern Ireland office 10, year, 10 years ago. I've been waiting 10 years for internment files relating to Lenny Murphy, John McCaig, Bo McClellan, people who have been long dead. And there's been obfuscation. Um, obviously, there's been the executive uh being down so there's been no minister but there's just been obfuscation at every turn trying to make sure that the files aren't released and it's not mm. by those who have custody prony it's not it's not prony it's the northern Ireland office department of justice so what <clears throat> confidence does that give anybody well, it, that there is going to be transparency well you see that behind those people uh, there's mi5 and mi6 and they're the people who were who are preventing this from coming up because their dirty secrets would, would eventually also emerge, you know? I mean, for example, do we know the full story of MI5's role in King Cora? No, we don't. But do we suspect that they knew all about it and they were blackmailing people? Yes, we do. We know people who were blackmailed. McGrath was being blackmailed by them, for example, right? <laughs> was being blackmailed by them. Other people were being blackmailed by them. So they don't want this stuff to come out. That's that's part of the problem. We want the stuff to come out because that's part of the story. It's an important part of the story. And, and it, it helps us to understand what happened, why things happened, why certain people were involved in the way that they were. Yeah, we were talking there about a very dirty chapter in an extremely dirty war. You know, it, yeah. the, the amount of uh, skullduggery and underhand and... oh. The stuff that went on in this place. To, that's before you get to Scapatici, for example, right? Uh, every single person that Scapatici killed was known about by the British government before they were killed, without a doubt. Absolutely without a doubt. If, you, if they didn't know about it, then, then their system wasn't working, and you can be sure their system did work. How many people did they allow to be killed? We don't know. I mean, just we just don't know. 
And did they did and they, they throw in their brand for... Nelson as well? Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. So it's so a huge, huge, dirty story, I, I, and it's a dirty story of of government misbehavior, uh, sanctioned by ministers because all these MI five and MI six organizations they don't do anything unless they get political cover. Right, so it's the politicians of the day and the politicians of the system that would be effectively on trial if something like this happened. You know, and that that will they will not allow that to happen. And you you mentioned Kinkora there, Ed, and obviously you know one of the first big stories that you were involved in with Andy Pollock was Kinkora. Yeah, C- can mm-hmm. you talk a wee bit about that and what it was like being involved in the early sort of breaking of that story? <clears throat> the same thing about the troubles. You know, I I regard myself as being you know I know it's a horrible story and people were dying horrible deaths and suffering all in all sorts of ways. But as a journalist, it was the greatest bloody story you could you could ever have. You know. I mean, I, you know, I didn't regard it as work. I regard it as a privilege to, to be able to cover the story and to be able to talk to people about what, what was going on, find out what was going on and discover things that people didn't know. Um, and that, I mean, I forget what was the thrust of, thrust of your question because I'm getting carried away by my rhetoric here, but it really was an extraordinary no, just, just To be a journalist involved in it, covering it was, was a real yeah, just, just, privilege. Yeah, no, just that, you know, you and Andy Pollock were obviously heavily involved in the Kinkora story yeah. coming out in the early 1980s. Yeah. So what what was your, what are your memories of that time and how the story broke and who who you were getting the information from and what, what it was like well, it to was, report on it at the time? Yeah, it was it was Jerry Fitt who started the, the story, the ball rolling, if you like, all right? He, he gave the story to the Irish Independent. I forget the name of the journalist who wrote the story, but he broke the story about about. Kinkora, there was this ring of of perverts who were who were raping and, and abusing boys in these homes, and uh, boom, you know, a secret which had been uh, known to the police for a long, long time. I mean, I saw a document quite recently, I think it's dated nineteen seventy three, and it gives a very, very specific <laughs> series of allegations about what was going on in Kinkora. That was in nineteen seventy three. This thing didn't really uh, didn't really. Um, uh, become public nearly ten until a decade later, nearly right, the beginning of the 1980s. You know, uh, so it was a t- tremendous, tremendous scandal, but but a tremendous story as well. You know? Sorry, what was the what yeah, was the thrust I mean, of your question again? No, again, it was just about what was it like to report on Kokora. But what, what it was, I would like to actually ask, ju- ju- well, just before that, because one of the people you you did talk to, and I mean, I, I know you mentioned her in your book about Paisley, was Valerie Shaw. You talk about the early 70s yes. and Kinkora being talked about yes. back then, and Valerie Shaw was one of those people. What, I mean, what, yes. what, what sense did you get from Valerie and how, how that affected her, that breach of trust? Um, she was appalled by it, absolutely appalled by it, and, and it led to her leaving the Free Presbyterian Church because it became clear that Paisley's behavior during the whole business was indefensible, that he, he knew more than he was saying, that he knew what he did admit to knowing at that conference, press conference, which was, you know, um, when I look, look back on it, was an extraordinary experience. Uh, this is at the Modest Memorial Church on the Ravenhill Road, and Paisley had called this press conference. Andy and I had called at his home the day before, 
and had been been chased off by by the police. I mean, very politely, just you know. But we wanted to make an approach to Paisley. We wanted to interview him and talk to him and put to him the various allegations that 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 Valerie and not only Valerie but others had also made about about his knowledge or behaviour during this whole place. And of course, we couldn't get anywhere. So the next day, he announced there would be a press conference, and there was a huge number of media there, as you can imagine. And it was just me and Andy really asking all the questions because there was very little knowledge at that stage. People were only beginning to to learn the story. Chris Moore was great on the BBC. He was uh, he was he was very close behind us in all of that, and then overtook us. And Chris has done all the great work since then on on Kinkora and established without doubt that that in his mind at least, and I think in my my mind, the MI5 are up to their necks in Kinkora. I knew all about uh, the ordeal that these boys were going through and did nothing about it. And they go to their beds and sleep every night. Um, you can imagine what other horrors these organizations are up to, you know. But if they did that, um, they, they certainly knew about Kinkora. Um, they were interested in McGrath because uh, after... Um, after Gusty Spence was was put away in jail, the UVF, as you probably know, like took refuge, if you want to put it that way, in inside Tara and joined en masse in Tara. And I think also they 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 had this idea that, oh, you know, McGrath was so well placed and he was supposed to have worked for MI5, smuggling Bibles across the, and he would know this, know that, and would have access to weapons and stuff like that. Well, they didn't get very many weapons from 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 Mr. McGrath. But you know the th that meant that the, it was a magnet for 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 MI5. So you know so, soon as um, as the UVF had any interest in Tara and McGrath, uh, MI5 would have known about um, sexual peccadilly peccadillos of of some of the people in in Tara, and um, and realized this is perfect intelligence material for blackmail. You know. And um, goodness knows how many loyalist politicians, some of them very respectable now, some of them haven't been named, but will be named, I think. I think Chris is working, working on a major, major book on this. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they all stood to be to be uh, uh, exposed as, you know, people who were too close to someone like McGrath, right? Because if you were close to McGrath, immediately the suspicion was that you weren't very different from him sexually either you know so Ed I want to talk about another sort of CD sort of time period it starts about 87 and it's something that sort of directly impacted my life growing up um, mm. in 1987 there was a young man Adam Lambert was shot and killed in the Highfield estate yeah. he was mistaken for a Catholic working in, in a Protestant yeah. housing estate and he was Billy shot Stobie. by the UDA yeah, yeah, he was shot uh, using the cover name the Red Hand Defenders, I believe. Um, and after that, after that whole sort of fracas about being unprofessional and everything else, Stobie, Stobie has a bit of a, a break in his conscience and becomes an informer. Um, mm. And he's he is then executed uh, outside his flats in the bottom of the Glencairn Estate in two thousand and one. Um, now I remember walking down the Glencairn Estate the following morning and seeing the tape. Uh, I said the flats of what had happened and hearing the stories. It's another case of some of just how shady this place is. That yeah. obviously he, he had turned informer, thinking he was doing the right thing, but that that knowledge had got to his his ex comrades, if you want. Yeah. 
and he was executed. And from what I'm told from the word on the ground, he knew it was coming. I mean, was he not offered protection at that point? Well, you know, I, I helped him negotiate his deal with the UDA. Um, um, I forget which particular point that, that actually started now. After all the publicity had died down or what have you, he'd met this woman and he wanted to marry her. Uh, I felt very sorry for Billy all the time. I mean, really was someone who was used by everyone, I think, you know. Um, and I, I negotiated a deal with, with them and the, the supporting pillar of that deal was that he would keep his mouth shut, right? He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he would stop talking about what took place, right? And I put that to him and he agreed to do that. And then he moved into, into that area. And the next thing, UTV or forget, or was it BBC? I can't remember which did a big TV series on or a big TV program on, on the whole case. And Billy, Billy was attracted to the media, I think, in a, in a way which proved to be fatal at the end of the day. And of course, he may, he gave the interview and he broke, therefore, the agreement that he had with the UDA. And that's why they came to kill him. So it was very, very sad. But, um, what, what can you say, you know? Can you say except yeah, I that? I think it was UTV um, who carried that you know, TV. At, at the heart of that, I'm sorry. It was UTV who carried the TV show. They made the TV. Was it UTV? Uh, right. On okay. the interview. So, with yeah, it was. Yeah. Anyway, it's all. Yeah. Um, it's all, all very, very, very sad. Um, and he was a harmless creature, you know. Uh, really, I, I know. I know he had a reputation for being for being otherwise, but um, I always found him to be a very decent man, you know. Um, and, um, I mean, genuinely, I think also he was thrilled at being at the center of the story, you know, some people unfortunately get a kick out of that, you know, I, and he got too many kicks and it eventually killed him, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, around that time, the Stevens inquiry were trying to compel you to give over, you know, material relating to your yeah. um, interview with Stobie. What, what was that yeah. like? It was horrible. Um, it's horrible. I mean, I remember coming back home. I forget where I'd been, uh, and summer had just started, so people were going off on holidays, what have you. And um, I arrived home, and there's this guy outside the house waiting for me, and he's got this great big um, suitcase with him, you know. And I only realized later when he brought it upstairs. I remember reading in brochures. This is where his bugging equipment was, right? This is where his tape recorder was. If you look back at brochures at that time, you'll see they used to sell recording of devices like this in, 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 in attache cases and in suitcases and stuff like that. Um, furniture that, uh, or, uh, bits and pieces of, of stuff that you carry around and, and not, not attract too much attention. But of course, you know, bringing a huge, great big suitcase like that into my house, you know, immediately I understood what it was. So that was that was a bizarre experience, and he he asked for all the he asked for the the stuff, and I just said no, sorry, not not you're not getting it, and that's how it started, you know. And it came at a very bad time because it was, um, I think it was June, and we were due to go off. Uh, my wife Joan is from New York here, so we were off going planning a trip over here, and it was a good thing that I made the trip because I met people who were very helpful, and we ended up getting a whole bunch of uh, very high level high caliber American journalists to sign a letter to um, to the paper, to the Irish Times, uh, condemning the Scotland Yard and British government attempt to 
get this material off me. And that pricked the conscience of the uh, Northern Irish media, which till that stage where you, you've been there, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? They're cautious and careful and a wee bit wary of a story like that. But once the Americans made it respectable to stand up for freedom of the press, then they, they all knocked each other over in the rush. So I'm just thinking about, you know, you've met pl- plenty of interesting people over the years. Um, and going uh, back to, you were talking about Paisley. Pa- yeah, you were talking about Paisley earlier. Now, one person that a lot of people might not be familiar with was Paisley's bodyguard, Sammy Stevenson. And yes. you actually met him when you were researching your book on Paisley. That's what, right. What yes, did you, tra- yeah, what are your Go memories on, of that? Oh, it's fascinating. Um, I traced him to um, a housing estate in South Belfast and um, recognized him immediately when he opened the door. And, and uh, of course, what he wanted was money, you know, he wanted money. Yeah. Um, and I said, I, we, we can't we can't pay you, but can I talk? This is money now to talk about the bombing, right? Uh, and who was involved, which is what you wanted, right? There's no way that I, I could do that, give him money, because, um, you know, you'd be open to all sorts of charges that, you know, the guy was being, had an incentive to invent stuff, you know, that's the real danger mm-hmm. of paying people money, you know, that get your money's worth, they have to make the story sound good, you know, so it's always very dangerous. But he did talk an awful lot about um, about that period. I think you got hold of the tapes in Lynn Hall, didn't you, Gareth, at one stage, yeah? I did, yeah, and I, I did, yeah, and I, I didn't want to talk too much publicly about it because I wasn't sure what 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 your thinking was over that. But the one thing that did strike me as being really interesting on that tape was where he talked about a meeting he'd had with Paisley at Martyrs Memorial Church. So we're going back to the sixties period, you know, before yeah. the troubles, or well, just just around the time of the bombing campaign that you mentioned, yes. where there was the false flag. Uh, bombs to make you know to bring O'Neill down basically at the time. Yes, um, of course. But yeah, Sammy Stevenson was. I think there was sh- some disagreement over money or feeling that money was being diverted the wrong way in the church. And he was in a car with Tom McDole, who eventually blew himself up at Ballyshannon. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> Tom McDole apparently produced a revolver and said, "I think they're on the Lagan Embankment or the Ormo Embankment," and McDole said. Look, if you want to go back round, I've got this revolver. I can shoot Paisley now. And for me, that's a really interesting sliding doors moment, if it's true, that if that yeah. had actually happened, what what might history have looked like after that? In, 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 now, it in, might in, be absolute rubbish, but, you know, it, I'm not but, sure. <laughs> yeah, you might want to take a story like that with a pinch of salt, but I don't know whether, Absolutely. whether it's true or not. But it, as you say, it's intriguing yeah. that that he told the story and and if it was true wow you know that that would be something else but the other stories were i mean he, he what 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 he highlighted was the importance of the shotsby square office to paisley at that time right it wasn't so much um the yeah. um wasn't so much the ravenhill road you know and how he was armed and he would be up there gardening the place with a rifle and stuff like that you know um none of which you would have thought of at the time i mean i was i was there at queens when civil rights movement started you know with the very very first march very very first march was actually in 1967 it was up to bill craig's house um uh, but it set the precedent for what happened next year in 78 and duke street and what have you and that march was complaining about um a ban that that craig had introduced on the republican clubs the ira had changed its name to try to you know to, to get a, a legal footing 
and call themselves Republican clubs instead of Sinn Féin. And, um, but that didn't work. So he banned Republican clubs and that was the start of the civil rights movement there. And then of course you had the, the major sit down at city hall, uh, on October, it would be sixth or seventh, I think after the March in Derry, I was on that one as well. Although your listeners don't know because they can't see me, but I'm disabled. I had polio as a child, so I didn't actually walk the whole distance, but I just sort of thumb a lift and get there ahead of people as it were and get the best seat in the, in the cinema as it were. Um, so I was there for that as well. Uh, and it was all history being made. And then the, uh, all the exciting meetings of the early people's democracy at Queens, they were just extraordinary meetings. Um, full of very articulate, uh, and very spirited people who were very motivated by the injustice that was behind all of this, you know. Little did we know where it was going to go, though, you know. Little did we know. Although some people did say, you, you know, I had a good friend who was from Short Strand, and uh, he would tell me the stories of what happened in the 20s and the 30s in the Short Strand, you know, and this is the reality of this place, and this is where it'll end up, he said, you know. And he was right. Yeah, you're talking about meeting some interesting people, and I think one of the ones that I would like to talk about is John McMichael. How you ended yes. up sitting in front of John at a table? I mean, do, do you want to fill us in on that story and give us as much detail yeah. as you want to give? Yeah, John. Dave, John saved Davey, my Davey life. Payne as well. Yeah, and Davy Payne. Yeah, I got a phone call. Well, for, the background to this is is what year are we talking about now? Eighty five. Eighty two. Was it? Was eighty two as early as that? Yeah. yeah. What had happened was that um, there'd been an election in the South, and the newly named or newly renamed uh, official Republican movement, calling themselves the Workers' Party, had a major breakthrough. At least what appeared to be a major breakthrough, and they won. They won enough seats in the election to hold the balance of power and keep Charlie uh, uh, Charlie Hoy in power, and they 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 did a deal with him. So I w- I had not quite been uh, appointed Northern Editor at the time, but I was writing the Northern Northern Notebooks that the Northern Editor usually did for every weekend. And I wrote this this piece in two parts. One part was about, you know, the the success of Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party in the South. They changed their name, they changed their image, there's no military um, trappings associated with them. And in contrast, up in the North, it was, you know, life as usual. And the Workers' Party was known as the official IRA, and they were involved in all sorts of stuff, including uh, building site rackets and stuff like that. Um, that weekend, Joan and I went off to Donegal for the weekend. I picked up the paper the next morning, and only the article appearing uh, that described uh, the Workers' Party's success in the South appeared. The other one had disappeared, right? and I never f- was able to find out what, what had happened to it, right? But I gave it to Vincent Brown, who was uh, editor of McGill at that stage, gave a copy of it, and plus a, another couple of documents that I had, because he was writing or researching a major piece on the Workers' Party and the official IRA, so this stuff would be helpful to him. And of course, I think the uh, unpublished part of the Northern Notebook um, was recognized in Vincent Brown's uh, article in various ways, you know, the details that were in, in the piece that I wrote appeared in Vincent's piece as well. And uh, anyway, 
the next thing I know is um, we're talking about 83, 80, 80, 83, 83, I guess it would be, 83, 84. Um, I get a phone call from um, John McMichael saying, would, would you come over to the, 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 uh, the office? And he could talk to you about something. So I drove over there, intrigued by what was uh, likely to happen when I got there. And there was... Um, John Michael and David Payne, and there's another guy there who, who's still alive, so I won't name him. But you wouldn't be, wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard to work out who, who he might have been. But there were three of them there, and they were they were the, the top military men. I mean, McMichael was military commander of the UVF, and David Payne was North Belfast commander of the UDA and an active killer. And uh, David Payne did all the talking, and he he had the ha this habit of coming up very close to you, all right. So you got a, like a, a very um, bird's eye view of a great big hole in his head where someone had put a hammer at one stage, right, just above his eyebrow. I forget whether it was left or right eyebrow, but there was a, a distinct hammer mark. Someone had obviously gone for him at some point. Um, and he explained that um, they had received information about me that uh, indicated that I was in the INLA. And because of my profile, they, you know, they were going to research this, and they discovered that there was nothing to it at all. And everyone was smiles and happy, and I was relieved um, to have survived all of that. But it was a narrow escape, you know. So the three of us parted on good terms, and I was forever grateful to John McMichael for doing that. Because, I, you know, John, John, I, I, you know, I can say this now, um, long, long since dead, but, you know, he'd be at the heart of a lot of these operations, you know. He was the military commander after all, you know. Um, and, um, I think the fact that they knew me, that, and uh, other people in the UDA knew me, Andy Thierry knew me, for example, very well. Um, uh, David Payne not so much knew who I was and what I was like, and w was I the sort of person who would end up doing that type of thing? I think struck them as odd to begin with. And then when they did their research, I presume they went to someone in the security forces who had intelligence who were able to tell them there was no basis for this. So my life was saved as a result of what John did. And I've expressed my thanks and gratitude to his widow many times or a number, a number of times since then. You know? So he, he did me yeah. a big favor to save my life. Yeah, I mean, we were talking to Davy Adams there a couple of weeks ago and, you know, talking about Ray Smallwoods. And I often wonder, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, what political loyalism or whatever progressive loyalism, what we call that, how different it might have been if John McMichael and Ray Smallwoods had lived. What What do you think would would have happened in terms of... I don't, because I don't they, know. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, it might be, you know, it, it's tempting to hope that they would have gone in certain directions. But um, there was the Davy, Davy Payne element always there in the UDA, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, you know, these, these organizations, it's extraordinary the extent to which they're led rather than, you know, they're, they're led from the top. I mean, look at the provost. Provost where they're at at the moment because Adams took them there, right? Um, you know, and they knew, they knew Adams and they knew where, where they were going. Um, and maybe it would have been the same with the, with the UDA, very possibly. You know, Michael would have been open, I think, to that type of thing. Uh, and and um, and and with the with the the provost obviously showing signs that their war was coming to an end, 
would they have responded? I suspect under him they probably would have, you know, uh, although there would have been resistance, but, you know, because a lot of suspicion and doubt about, about Provo's intentions everywhere, you know, not just in, 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 in government, but in paramilitary circles and journalistic circles. You know, was this true? Was this really genuine? Um, and obviously it was. Yeah, and I think I'll sort of round up the questions that I have by asking a more sort of contemporary question. You, you come from an old school sort of journalistic point of view and, and you ser- you search for the truth and through the th- stories like Kinkora and Stobie, you were always at the heart of the story and what you produced could be backed with fact and evidence. But today's journalism has changed. It's up to the minute, it's 24 hour and it's sometimes it's done so quickly. The facts mm. haven't had a chance to catch up with what the headline yeah. is. I yeah. mean, do, do you look at today's journalism and think to yourself, oh dear, or do you look at it and think it's a new age? Well, a bit of both, I suppose. You know, uh, th- these things happen and there's very little you can do to stop them because they become trends and people follow trends. And uh, and if it works in the sense that it, there's a good business model there, then, then they'll, they'll go for it. But I do agree, um, you know, where do you get good journalism now, for example, in Britain and Ireland? Um, the Guardian, maybe, you know, occasionally the Times and Telegraph, perhaps. But um, in Ireland, uh, the Irish Times, I think, uh, I find the Irish Times terribly boring. Um, you know, not much there to interest me at all, you know. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I, think, I think we're in a bad way journalistically, but, you know, for reasons not to do with the troubles, just to do with business and the way these things are done, you know? Yeah, everything has, I mean, we always have a bias of our own anyway with, with our own leanings and tendencies, but it just seems to be now that it's corporate bias. It's, it's yeah. whatever version of events that sort of furthers their point of view or their Absolutely. ideology or where their, their target market yeah. is sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that produces the most clicks or the most uh, newspapers bought and stuff like that. Yeah, of course, I agree with that. You know that, that's that's definitely yeah, and, and as much as as much as the troubles was a horrible time, at least journalism at the time could be seen to be of a better standard, of a better standing at that point. I mean, yeah, like reporting yeah, on I, daily I think, basis. I think, I think that's I think that's true, Sam. I wouldn't disagree with that that at all. You know, and then we were I was lucky, I think, to to live through that and work through that through that period. Um, it was a privilege, great fun. Um, I enjoyed every single minute of it. Really did. Absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, horrible, horrible thing to say because you know there people's lives were being lost and what have you. But uh, if you can sort of bear that in, bear that in mind. Um, at the same time, uh, as a story, it had no equal. It was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and and hopefully we'd never have to, to witness it again. Ed, to be honest, I don't think. Oh, indeed, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it was a one-off. It's never going to happen again. Yeah. Unique set of circumstances, I think, you know, produced that. Um, fuck-ups by all sorts of people led to it, really. Biggest fuck-up by the British Army, I think. And then, you know, then you set in motion events that become uncontrollable, you know. Uh, and uh, you're dealing with a place with a sort of uh, history that Northern Ireland has had then you're asking for trouble and that's what happened you know but a lot of good books are coming yeah. out now you know um for some yeah. good study now that the documentation is more available you know 
But again, yeah, I, you know, I would... I'll come back to this idea that, that, that people have the right to have a say about all of this. And that's why I think a sort of like a, some sort of mechanism which would allow people to tell their stories about what happened, what they did, what they didn't do, what, what they should have done, and so on and so forth, and what happened to their families and what have you. That's necessary, and that's not being done. Yeah, I, 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 just interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you pick up on that because I was going to ask you what your assessment is on the current state of the historical accounts of the troubles, but you've alluded there that you're very positive about what's emerging, and and that's good to hear. Can you yes. talk a wee bit about some of the works that you're most fond of in the last couple of years? Because I'm thinking, I mean, we've got Hugh Bennett coming on next week. He's done a really good book recently about the British yes. Army. Yeah. Um, there's just like it seems to be a really golden age for good troubles histories new yes, fresh know, dynamic and, approaches and, my, my, and i'll confess I'll, <laughs> I'll confess gareth my my reading list is about that high at the moment right of stuff that i have to read and haven't yet read so i know, I know the read. feeling yeah <laughs> so yeah. when i read them i'll maybe be be uh, equipped to answer your question more, more <laughs> thoroughly but in general yeah i think it's good i tell you what's happening as well i think a lot of documentation is becoming available uh that wasn't available a lot of stuff government do stuff is coming coming out um and uh, uh you know i think i think people will will have a better view of what happened during this period from the stuff that's coming out now than they did 20 years ago and i hope with the the resources and the material that's becoming available that we get a more rounded and balanced view on what the troubles were rather than the black and white sort of stuff that we've been fed over the years. We get, yeah, we get a better understanding and a better better knowledge of background. Yes, I mean, that's the case. I mean, uh, when human beings are involved, it's always complicated, much more complicated than, you know, writers would like it to be. Tottenham leads West Ham by 1-0 at halftime. Christian Romero, our wonderful... Yeah. Latin American player has just scored. So I just just check checked that, but I didn't know if you were doing likely lads and wanted to avoid the score, so I didn't reveal it. But yeah, <laughs> you you, you find out now anyway of your own volition. So that's well, okay. it came it came up on on the screen here, so I, nothing to do with me. Yeah. yeah. So I anyway I enjoyed well, that. I hope it was it was worth your while as well. Absolutely, it certainly was. Ed. thank you very much. And listen, keep in touch because. I think over the next couple of months, there's going to be some serious books coming out that's going to give us pockets of information that we didn't think we were ever going to get. So yes, we'll maybe have another chat some other time. Yeah, Richard O'Rourke's book on Scapatichi. Have you read that yet? No? I've got it on the to-read list, just like yeah, Ralph. Right. It's sitting there it's very with good. all the other ones, but yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's a very good book, but it's also, he's got like, he obviously had the advantage of... Um, of of uh, being in the IRA himself, and therefore, you know, a lot of people were prepared to talk to him, talk to uh, to you or me necessarily, you know. So, uh, and he's got a good good insight, good insight into that, you know. And Richard's story is really fascinating. He was um he was one of the interviewees for the Boston Project, you know. Um, yeah. And um, Anthony McIntyre had 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 heard about him and heard about. Sort of a, 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 a mongrelized version of, of this of his story, as you know, as it transpired in during the hunger strikes. You know, but anyway, he persuaded him to sit down and, and talk. And 
but it was very difficult to get Richard to actually talk about what he really wanted to talk about, which was what happened during the hunger strike and how the leadership essentially had had allowed men to die for whatever reasons, you know. Um, and when that came, Maka said it was like you know he, he was he was so emotional, like a uh, a wave had broken, you know. And he was never, I don't think he was ever the same after that. Uh, once he got the courage to tell that story, and a lot of people like him, terrified of telling, of the story, of then telling the story and the provost finding out what would happen to them, you know. Once you, once you pass that, that, that uh, margin of fear, as he did, uh, he flowered and he's become a great writer, I think. He's written a play. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many books he's written now. None of that would have happened if uh, he hasn't done the, the interviews with Boston College. And of course, he then, you know, writing, writing the very first book, the book of, of, of his interview, which, you know, was, uh, um, I think was a crucial period for him as well. Uh, and I sat down with him for, for long sessions on that at times. And, um, and he produced a great book and um, something which I think rewrote the history of that period, you know, and, and uh, begs questions that still really haven't been answered about what the Provo leadership were really up to during the hunger strike. Did they allow their men to die in in the hope that this would produce political benefits and, and bonuses of one sort or another? That's a question which will haunt Adams forever as a result of, of that. That wouldn't have happened but for Boston College. Well, Ed, I think we'll let you go on. Uh, you can catch the second half of the okay. Spurs game and hopefully they, they come All through. Right. But thank you very much for joining us tonight. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed yeah. it, and good luck. And I'll, you'll keep me posted about what's going on. Yes. All right. Thanks, Ed. Cheers. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. Hi, folks. It's me again, Sam McElwain, your host. Just want to say thanks for listening and for all the support you've given us over this journey. Um, if you can join us on Patreon, there's a lot more content on there from our sister podcasts. Um. Wherever you get your podcast from, give us a five-star rating. It's the way we get this conversation out there. You tell your friends, give us a review. And if you want to reach out with anything you want, feedback, or if you want to have a chat with us on air, um, we're, we're on shrapnelpodcast at gmail.com or you have us on Twitter. And uh, we're going to do an upcoming Christmas special. Uh, and when we do that, we'd like to have a few more voice notes. There's a couple come in there, but if you have anything to say, you want your voice on, on Shrapnel for our end-of-year roundup, Send it in to us. You can either email it in to us or again, you can you can send it in through the Twitter messaging service. Thanks very much, folks. Stay with us. We're, we're doing what we do because you're out there. You're listening. Thank you. <laughs>